So if you're curious about real estate funds and syndication investments, but you don't know how they work, you don't know how, ultimately how you get paid, this is the episode for you. Take a listen. You're listening to Alternative Investor Mastermind, where we do a deep dive on alternative investment opportunities and the lifestyle it can create. Join Jack Krupe as he presents actionable tips and tricks in doing passive real estate away from mainstream strategies. Go beyond the usual fix and flips and try less explored yet rewarding investing ventures from multifamily properties, mobile homes to cryptocurrencies. Do not miss this opportunity to escape traditional assets and finally create wealth without Wall Street. Now your host, Jack. So you're curious about real estate syndications, you've seen some emails, maybe you've seen some Google or Facebook ads, but you don't really know how it works. You don't know how the money flows. I'm going to do a deeper dive into this syndication and private fund business and tell you exactly how it works. So you've been following the syndication space, seeing groups like us advertise and show our successful real estate deals, but you're wondering, if it's such a great deal, why do, you, why do they need my money? I'm going to talk about that in today's episode. Private real estate funds and syndications are a great way to invest. And there are some terms that might be new to some of you. I'm going to talk through some of the terms like GP, co-GP, sponsor, operator, and make sure you understand where everyone fits in this business. I first got involved in syndications in the mid-2010s. I first got involved in syndications around 2015. I'd already owned a number of single and multifamily properties, and I was in a very successful and growing uh, distressed mortgage company. And I was looking for tax-efficient alternatives and some passive income, and I knew I didn't have the time or the energy to try to buy single-family properties and do renovations. Uh, one of the networking groups I was a part of in New York City, I met a, a sponsor or operator, those terms are interchangeable, um, that uh, was buying multifamily properties down in... Uh, Georgia and uh, South Carolina. And we had a similar background. He had uh, started with single family and he had a lot of the same challenges I had with, with scaling and, uh, and operations. And it's just, it's much more difficult to own a number of scattered site, uh, single and small multifamily properties. So he put together a deal in uh, Charleston and uh, he'd uh, raised money from a number of investors. He did a private placement, which is uh, a document that's filed with the SEC, and it has all these risk disclosures and all the things that could go wrong in a deal. Also with a full business plan and projections for buying a property, renovating a number of the units. This, this was a, you know, a relatively stable property. It was just old and dated. And that is one of the, the, the core types of assets we look for. It's called a value add. And value add is generally renovating apartments and uh, improving the apartment, you know, perhaps a new kitchen, new countertops, new cabinets, uh, new flooring, and, um, you know, often new bathrooms, and then exterior improvements, roofs, paint, paving, um, adding, adding amenities like a dog park, a, a, you know, maybe a gym, uh, barbecue grills. Um, maybe it's actually just running the building more efficiently, um, you know, separating utilities. Um, in some cases, it's using the space more efficiently. We've had situations where a two-bedroom apartment was used as a leasing office where the building is 95% occupied and you could actually, you know, install a shed or, you know, a small temporary structure and run the leasing office for 
uh, you know, a small investment in a, in, in moving the leasing office that opens up a part, an apartment that rents for $2,000 a month or $24,000 a year. And, uh, that increase in, in rental income can raise the value of the building by a few hundred thousand dollars. So we, we've seen situations on deals we've invested in where, you know, just doing that adds hundreds of thousands. You might spend even 20, 25 grand to, to use like a, a, a shed or, or something just to have a, uh, you know, a leasing office and an exterior structure and that, alone raises the value of the building by hundreds of thousands of dollars. So I invested into that deal and uh, it worked like most other syndication deals work and just like our fund works, uh, the capital was raised and um, there is a preferred return paid. That means the passive investors need to earn a return on their money first before the sponsors or operators get any promote or carried interest or additional profit split. Most syndication deals are a 70-30 profit split. Some are 80-20. And uh, that means that the passive investors, the limited partners, will get 70% of the money and the general partner will get 30% of the money. However, the general partner does not get that money until the passive investors have actually received all of their capital back and they need to be paid their preferred return. So if the preferred return is 8% annually, that means that the passive investor needs to be paid $8,000 annually on their $100,000 investment. And then once all of their money is returned, then the general partner gets a percentage of the profits. Now on an individual syndication deal, Think of it almost like a line of credit. You're, you're investing 100000 While your $100,000 is in use, you're being paid 8% on that. But let's say three years into the project, the value has increased significantly, and there's a refinance. And in that refinance, the, the property value is doubled, and you take out a, a new loan at 70% loan-to-value, a, a reasonably conservative loan-to-value. And because of that, half of the principal is returned. So you're, you started with 100,000 three years ago. You made, you made 8,000 a year for th- three years. Now at the end of year three, you're getting $50,000 returned to you. So going forward, year four and year five, you already have 50,000 of your 100,000 original investment back and you made the 8,000 per year on your 100,000. Now you're four, you only have 50,000 invested because half of your principal was also returned. So you're still owed a preferred return, but now your preferred return is only on your unreturned capital. So you're only owed a preferred return on 50,000, not 100,000. So in this scenario, you'd earn $4,000 per year in, in uh, preferred return, not 8,000. Fast forward a few more years and the property is up for sale and it sells for double what you origin what double the original property price and let's say that there's going to be a hundred thousand dollars in proceeds now remember you already got fifty thousand back you already got eight thousand dollars a year the first few years and you got four thousand dollars a year the last two years at this point there's a hundred thousand left over and let's assume you did get your 4,000 in year four and year five, and it sells right at the end of year five. 
at this point, there's going to be the the 50000 in the remaining unreturned capital is returned to you. So now you have all your principal back and you received all of your preferred returns. Now there's 50000 left in pure profits to distribute. Then and only then does the general partner take the percentage of the profits. So in the, in the scenario where it's 70%, then 70% of that 50000 would go to you and the sponsor would take 30% of that 50000 and that is their, their carried interest or their promoted interest. And uh, you know, that is their, their profit for doing a really good deal, providing you a significant amount of passive income and a really strong return. And that is their, you know, their profit. And a majority of deals, a majority of the, of the profit is really on the back end and incentivizes the sponsor to uh, do a good job and generate as, high, you know, as, as strong of a return as possible. So what are the fees? There are a number of fees that are typically uh, included in, in these deals. Um, number one is there is typically an acquisition fee. And uh, that fee is based mostly, most of the time, on the purchase price of the property. And uh, it's often one, two, two and a half percent of the value of the property. So on a large multifamily, it could be a significant fee. It could be 500000 to a million dollars in some cases. And I know a lot of investors... Um, you know, balk or have concerns over that. And, uh, you know, I think as long as it's within the industry standard and, you know, since we do a high volume of transactions, we're very conscious of what everyone's charging for an acquisition fee. Um, however, you need to keep in mind that um, our partners and most syndicators will look at hundreds of deals to find one good deal. And that costs a lot of money. Um, you know, it may include paying a full-time analyst, may include a full-time acquisitions person that is spending their day uh, researching properties, talking to brokers, talking to sellers, seeking out off-market deals, doing marketing, um, marketing expenses, traveling expenses, because most of these properties, you know, some people do invest in their backyard. I mean, if you live in Dallas, if you live in a market with a lot of multifamily, but most operators will, will have a couple target markets, and, and many times they don't live in that market. So there's travel expenses to and from the property. There's due diligence reports. There's um, deposits. Um, often you need to put down a, a good faith deposit to even get into uh, into due diligence. So it, it's a very cash intensive, very time intensive, and and all of that is done before a deal is syndicated, before they start raising money from passive investors. So there's a lot of overhead there. The acquisition fee largely reimburses the significant amount of capital that the operator has already spent in both time and actual money to pursue hundreds of properties and then ultimately find one property that becomes a good uh, acquisition opportunity and a good property to syndicate. The other fees are asset management fees. Um, while the property is being managed, there's usually a third-party property manager. Um, some Larger sponsors actually, you know, co-own or own their own property management company. And, uh, the property management fee is, is, is at the property level and it's typically on the gross rents collected. And then there's also typically an asset management fee and that covers the overhead of the sponsor to, uh, oversee the property management, project management, project manage construction, um, do investor reporting, coordinate with accountants. And, uh, that's, uh, sometimes also a percentage of rent, but it may also be a percentage of assets under management, a percentage of what equity was uh, was raised.
And those are the two most common fees. Um, some sponsors will have a fee for construction management. If they're doing that in-house, that's usually a uh, override on the construction budget. And, uh, you know, if they're, if they're good, you know, that fee many times pays for itself. If they're able to, uh, you know, secure a warehouse, buy materials in bulk, save money, negotiate better contracts, um, it can be a very, uh, you know, it could, it could work out that you actually break even on that fee because of the, the cost savings that they've generated. So should I invest in an individual syndication deal or a private real estate fund? That's a great question, and it really depends on what your investment goals are. If you're making your first investment outside of the stock market, you know, you've typically only done stocks, bonds, index funds, I think a real estate fund is a great first step. The reason being is you could have diversification across multiple geographies, multiple operating partners, and multiple asset classes. Real estate is a local business, and even when you see headlines about certain challenges, there's a lot of real estate markets that are performing really well. Uh, the southeastern United States and the Sun Belt still have significant population growth, and many markets still have significant job growth. You also need to pay attention to the submarkets. You may see a headline that rents in a certain market are dropping, but that's the overall rent throughout the high end and the low end of the market. And there's many markets where high-end rents have dropped by a few hundred dollars, but there's still a housing shortage in the workforce housing, the middle-class housing. We've seen that in Phoenix. Rents, uh, we've seen a number of headlines, rents are down 2 to 5%, but our rents are still up significantly, both on units that we're renovating and also just lease, uh, lease renewals. And uh, many of the buildings we bought, the, mar- the, the, lease, the, the leases were below market to begin with, and we're bringing them, them up to market. So it's just important to note that real estate is a local business, both, both regionally and then also even within the submarket. So if you're new to syndicated investing, a fund can be a great way to get started. Um, you could be in multiple properties in multiple regions. It gives you protection against natural disaster as well. Texas is a great market overall for real estate, but a few years ago they had a deep freeze. If your only investment was in a property that uh, you know had frozen pipes and was maybe out of commission for three or six months waiting for insurance, it may have worked out all right. But you know you could have had a scary time, and and you know insurance doesn't always cover cover everything. If your only investment was Florida and there's a hurricane coming down, that's going to create a lot of stress. So it's great to be in a diversified portfolio where you have experienced fund managers who are who are investing in, in deals on your behalf. It gives you diversification. It also gives you dollar cost averaging. You know, a fund that deploys over 6, 12, or 18 months is able to stay in the market and, and average out. So when interest rates were going up last year, you're, we weren't. Uh, our fund was continually investing. And as the year progressed, we were getting low, we were getting better pricing on our later acquisitions because as interest rates rose, we were able to negotiate some better deals and the, the market, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people were, were just a little scared or concerned and stayed out of the market. So if these are such great deals and the syndicator is such a good operator and general partner, why are they looking for more money? And that's a question I asked myself early, early on. And ultimately, because these are private placements, these are private investments, they're not publicly traded, they're not covered on CNBC, you know, it, it can be difficult to raise money. 
Most of these deals start as friends and family deals. They used to be called more country club deals. Uh, be- before the laws changed with the, uh, the internet and social media, um, it was, uh, you know, difficult, uh, and, and sometimes, uh, you know, dangerous to advertise. Uh, they amended the rules in 2012. And, uh, you know, now, you know, you're allowed to advertise and promote a, uh, an offering or an opportunity as long as you limit the opportunity to accredited investors. And accredited investors are investors that make either 200,000 a year if single or 300,000 if married and or have a net worth of $1 million excluding their primary residence. So this is still somewhat of a new um, new business. It's been 11 years since the, uh, you know, since the law was passed. And really, I think the last five or so, it's become more and more prevalent. You'll, you'll see a number of the large crowdfunding sites out there. You're seeing some, uh, you know, larger venture tech based companies promoting, uh, opportunities. So it's still, it's still a relatively new industry. It used to be, you know, somewhat of a country club deal slash old boys club. And now it's becoming more and more mainstream. And I think that is great for the investment community. The fact is too many accredited investors. And when I say accredited, again, the million dollar net worth, um, and really those worth one to 20 to 25 million. I think too many of those investors have way too much of their money concentrated in the traditional financial products, stocks, bonds, index funds, and not enough in private equity, real estate. The fact is, once you have 50 to $100 million net worth, you, you may start a family office. And, and, and those that have that net worth, uh, uh, often more than half of their money is invested in private equity and real estate and not as much in the, the standard you know, stocks, bonds, and index funds. So... Uh, it's an important pivot, and if you have a net worth, if you're or growing your net worth, um, doing a deep dive and, and getting exposure to real estate syndications and private real estate funds is a great way to build wealth. Lastly, I want to talk about some of the asset classes that are common in real estate funds and syndications. The most common is multifamily, and Multifamily can range, but it's generally commercial multifamily that we focus on is generally 100 to say 300 units. It's big enough that, you know, the, the small mom and pop investors, uh, can't do it on their own. And it's small enough that you're not competing with publicly traded companies or REITs that have often a lower cost of capital and, uh, you know, and are able to, to pay premiums. With that said, in today's market, uh, we're actually acquiring a deal from a major uh, REIT that has a number of redemptions. It's a private REIT, so um, they have uh, people requesting withdrawals. And because of that, they need to sell an asset. So um, we're actually, uh, our fund is participating in a deal that's uh, being bought from one of the you know, largest REITs in the country that is, uh, because of timing, needs to sell. And uh, we're buying it at a 20% discount to the price in 2021. And it's in Dallas. And it's a, it's a great, it's a great, amazing asset and amazing opportunities. So uh, even though in general, we don't love to compete with REITs and public companies, uh, when the timing is right, you can take advantage. Uh, another asset class that we uh, follow and uh, participate in is self-storage. Uh, it's known as one of the most recession-resistant assets. Uh, if you look at the performance of self-storage in 2008, it was up. 
And if you think about it, anytime people are moving, whether it's a recession and they're downsizing or whether you're in a growth market and people are moving to the area, there is a need for self-storage. It's also a great asset class because it's very, uh, you know, the operational costs are, are often uh, minimal. Um, there's a lot of technology and self-service options. Uh, there's also a lot of storage facilities that were built in the 80s and 90s that were mom and pop owned. And there's much like multifamily where you can do value add through renovated apartments. Uh, through self-storage, there's a lot of opportunities to value add and be more efficient. That can include uh, creating some climate controlled units. Uh, those will rent for a premium, just putting in a, you know, a heating and air conditioning system to keep the temperature right. Um, that's worth a lot more money. You know, you don't want to store, uh, you know, your baseball card collection in, in a, you know, in a, in a storage unit that's going to be 110 degrees and humid in the summer. So adding, adding climate control can be a, a major, uh, a major plus. Uh, many self-storage facilities also have additional land. So it's not uncommon for an operator to buy a self-storage facility and build an additional, uh, group of units on the same property. And fortunately, you know, self-storage is ultimately like building a, building a garage in many cases. So the complexity is not nearly as much as trying to build a single family house or build apartment buildings. Um, you, you know, you still need to go through permitting and you still uh, need a construction uh, team, but it's a lot less complex. There's a lot less moving parts than, uh, you know, say a residential business. We've invested in student housing, and uh, we did a number of great deals towards the end of COVID. And um, you know, student housing is a you know is a great asset class if you're well positioned and you have a university that's growing or has continuous demand and or has a lack of uh, lack of on campus housing. And you could often partner with the, the university. Sometimes the university needs housing so bad that you might have a net lease with the university. Uh, in other cases, you just, uh, you know, run a property with proper amenities and, uh, you know, market to students. And what's great is often the parents are paying the rent. Often you're pre-leased months ahead of time for the following academic year. And, um, you know, if you, if you do a good job, there's often, uh, a lot of organic renewals or just referrals. Um, you know, an underclassman knows, uh, you know, a senior living in a property and, uh, they're going to graduate and, uh, often, often the places can fill themselves. Senior housing is a great asset class as well. You may have heard a lot about the, uh, the, the, you know, the gray wave. Um, the average baby boomer is uh, reaching retirement age. At this point, we're at the tipping point where I think more, more baby boomers are retired, retiring than not at this point. And, uh, you know, the great, the great resignation along with COVID also pushed that forward a little faster. So there's going to be a continuing need for senior housing. Uh, we invested in a senior housing deal actually during COVID, which, uh, may, uh, may sound, uh, illogical, but, um, it was actually a great investment. And one of the benefits of new senior housing versus old senior housing is a lot of them were built in the seventies and eighties. Just they, they weren't, it, it didn't give the warm and fuzzies to an occupant. It was, it looked, they looked more like hospitals, um, and not like a house. Um, modern senior living really creates the feel of the home. And, uh, it, it's, it's just a much more, hospitable and livable environment for those moving into into senior housing. On top of that, you have all the modern technology. You've got the negative pressure air conditioning systems. So when you, if you do have uh, flu season or, you know, another pandemic, 
Um, it's about as safe as possible for, you know, not circulating air between, um, you know, between individual rooms. And it's, uh, you know, the demographics are on, on our side here. There's going to be continual growth of uh, the need for senior housing over the next, uh, you know, next decade or more. And there's various other asset classes. There's build to rent. There's a, there's still a, a major shortage of rental properties in this country. Um, there's also a pretty strong demand from private equity funds to own uh, rental communities and certain private equity funds like um, either single family house or planned unit developments where there's a number of houses, um, you know, in the same neighborhood or cul-de-sac. Um, I, I talk a lot about the negatives of owning scattered site single family houses. And, uh, you know, to me, that's not the most optimal strategy. However, um, a build to rent community is a little bit different because you are building in many cases, hundreds of properties all within the same community. And sometimes they're hundred percent owned just like an apartment complex by one sponsor. Um, in other cases, it's a mix where you're building some units to sell to owner occupants, but you're holding a number of them for rentals as well. And that, that could have some benefits for the neighborhood. Um, you know, owner occupants do tend to take better care of their property. So it could provide a good balance of, of, you know, single family or townhouse type homes for owner occupants that want them long term and a much needed increase in available rental properties, especially in these growing markets with population growth where people are moving into the area and they need a few years to figure out where ultimately they want to land. That's all for this episode of Alternative Investor Mastermind. Now that you know the many alternative opportunities out there all up for the taking, you can finally become ultra-connected and ultra-wealthy. Get more valuable advice from the experts by subscribing to the show at alternativeinvestormastermind.com. Become a winner in the world of passive investing today in alternative investment strategies. Thank you for joining us. Until next time.